The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you've got your Bibles this morning, would you join me in 1 Peter chapter 5? Together we're going to be looking at verse 8 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8. The use of contrasts are one of the greatest tools in uh, literature to, to drive home a point, to, to make something clear. Regularly, authors use contrasts. And this is a tool that the Apostle Peter uses regularly. We've seen Peter use contrast throughout this letter as we've been walking through it verse by verse. And here in verses 7 and 8, we see that contrasts are a tool that, that Peter is using again here. What we see is a contrast between God who is mighty, who is sovereign, who is caring, who is loving, who is able, who is willing to take our worries and anxieties and replace them with a peace that can only come from Him. We see God, and then in contrast, we see Satan, who is our adversary, who is looking for someone to devour you can see Peter use this contrast starting in verse 6, where he writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You see the contrast here of the sovereign, mighty hand of God that is willing and able to exalt with a heart that cares and loves, and then that of our adversary, Satan, who is seeking to destroy. We see in verse 6, and we saw last week, that we are called... First to humility, a humility that is both horizontal, one to another, and also vertical as we humble ourselves before God. A humility that brings about an eventual exaltation and a peace and a rest for our souls. This is what you see Paul or Peter call us to. But this is not a humility that is lazy. I think sometimes, maybe not knowingly, we can think of being humble, having humility as being lazy, as not being active. Um, but that's not what Peter calls us to. He doesn't call us to a humility that breeds a, a lack of engagement, a laissez-faire attitude that says, well, God's mighty hand will take care of it. I don't have to, to do anything. That's not what Peter calls us to. Instead, he calls us to a humility that, that's the exact opposite of that. So in verse 6, calls us to be humble. Verse 7 gives us the results of that humility in that we can now cast our cares um, upon God because he cares for us. And then in verse 8, 
calls us to be sober-minded. Sober-minded. So yes, we're marked by humility. Yes, we're marked by trust in God. We humble ourselves one to another. We humble ourselves before God. We trust in the sovereignty of God, His mighty right hand. But all the while, we stay active, and and Peter calls us to a sobriety of mind, to be sober-minded. This is one of Peter's favorite phrases. This is a a word or a phrase that's only used six times in the New Testament, three of which Peter uses in 1 Peter. To be sober-minded means to be aware of your surroundings. Uh, John MacArthur says of its, its use that it is... Ordering and balancing life's important issues, which requires the discipline of mind and body that avoids the intoxicating allurements of the world. To be able to order and balance the most important issues in life and to do so with a discipline in your mind and in your body that comes by not being intoxicated by the trappings of the world. A sobriety of mind. It means to be aware of your surroundings. To see reality clearly. To be fully awake spiritually. To be sober-minded means to have nothing that dulls your spiritual senses, right? So you know the opposite of sobriety is is intoxication or or drunkenness. And if you ingest too much uh, beer, liquor, wine, what happens? Your your senses are dulled, right? Everything is, is dulled. Reality is no longer reality. That's spiritually speaking what Peter's talking about. The opposite of that, to have nothing that dulls our spiritual senses. So here's what I ask myself when I see this, that we are to be sober-minded. Well, that means that we can be spiritually dull, right? I mean, if we're called to be spiritually sharp, then we can be spiritually dull. Well, I don't want to be spiritually dull. I want to know what is it that could bring about spiritual dullness? What is it that threatens my sobriety of, of mind? I just thought of four things pretty quickly here. What, what can dull our spiritual senses? Well, the first is obvious and it's clear, and that is sin. Sin works to dull our spiritual senses, to distort the world, to distort reality. A love for the world, an engagement in sin, a lack of repentance of sin dulls us spiritually to the things of God. It changes the way we see things. Sin works that way. Sin's not the only thing that can bring about a dullness of our spiritual senses, but bad theology can bring about a a dullness of our senses. Not rightly understanding God's word, but twisting God's word. Believing things that aren't true. Believing things about God that aren't true. Believing things about yourself that aren't true. Believing things about the world that aren't true. All of these things work together to dull our spiritual senses. We want to have sobriety of mind. Which means we don't want to have the the effects of sin dulling our spiritual senses. We don't want to have 
uh, bad theology that causes us to see things through a lens that is not correct. Spiritual sluggardness can dull our spiritual senses. Uh, Just not being engaged spiritually in spiritual disciplines like prayer and the intake of God's word and solitude. And um, if we're not engaged in our spiritual life in a way that is active and growing, if instead we are spiritually lazy then our spiritual senses can be dulled and we will not have a sobriety of mind. And then lastly, a lack of gathering together can dull our spiritual senses. If you live life isolated, not engaged in the life of the local church, then you will not be um, as spiritually aware as if you were engaged in the life of the body. It just can't happen. Because there are things in me that, that I don't see but that you see, and you're able to bring those to my attention. There is is aspects of our spiritual life that are cultivated as we gather together one with another, that when we don't, they go neglected, and we lose sobriety of mind. A sobriety of mind brings about discernment, the ability to rightly interpret the issues of life through a biblical lens. This is what Peter's calling us to, being sober-minded. To be sober-minded. We we are sober-minded. We are thinking clearly. We're interpreting the world clearly. We're seeing reality clearly. We have a biblical worldview. We have a spirituality that's being cultivated and growing. There's sobriety of mind. Then guess what happens? As that happens, it brings about in us the ability to be watchful. These two things go together. Peter joins them together in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Be watchful. It means to be aware, to have um, awake spiritual eyes, to not be distracted. Well, guess what I do when I get to that and it says be awake, be aware? I want to think, well, what is it that can make me not awake? What is it that can make me not aware? Because I want to avoid those things. And I, I thought of just three that we see from First Peter. First is suffering. Suffering can be something that causes us to not be spiritually aware to take our eyes off of where our eyes need to be, to put our eyes on ourself or our circumstances and miss the bigger picture of what God is doing. Suffering can do that. This is a church that's in the midst of great suffering. And Peter's calling them to be aware. Anxiety can call us, calls us to not be aware, to miss what God is doing, to not see things clearly. To miss the attacks of the enemy because we're heavy laden with anxiety. This is exactly why Peter just said, cast all your anxieties on him for he cares for you. And sin can cause us to be distracted. A love for the world to miss what it is God is is doing. We're called to be sober-minded and to be Watchful. This is what Jesus said, Mark 14, 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch, be aware, have a sobriety of mind, have have a, a clearness in thinking, be watchful so that in those moments of need, whether they be from, from anxiety, suffering, sin, we don't fall into greater temptations. Church, there is a need for us to cultivate in our lives, as we see in these verses, a humility, a trust in God, a sober-mindedness, and a spiritual alertness because there is a great danger for us. There's a great danger for us. And that danger is not suffering. That danger comes from our adversary, the devil. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, when we deal with issues of Satan and demons, there is much misunderstanding and confusion. And so I want us to look together at God's Word to get some answers to some common questions, all right? So what we're going to see this morning may be a little different than normal, but more of a topical exposition. Because I think when we get to the issues of the devil is a roaring lion eager to devour us, I think we, we for some of us, there's, there's some confusion about exactly... Um, who Satan is, where Satan came from, what Satan's powers are, those kinds of things. And so I want to look at God's Word and get some answers. So, so here's maybe the first question that I feel like we, we probably need to get a good grasp on, and that is, where did Satan come from? Where did he come from? I mean, if God is good and God is all-powerful and God loves us and he cares for us, then, then why, where did Satan come from? Does that mean God created evil? Well, the scriptures make it clear that God created everything, everything, including Satan. God created everything. The scriptures make that clear. Do you know what else the scriptures make clear? That once God God got done creating everything, he stepped back and do you know what he said? This is good. This is good. And do you know what was included in this is good? Satan and every demon. Because at the time, Satan and every demon weren't Satan and demons. They were angels created by God. And they were good. They were good. So that's Genesis 1.31. Then we get to Genesis 3.1 and something has happened. Things have changed and Satan in the form of a serpent was present in the garden tempting Adam and Eve to sin, to not trust God and not to take him at his word. So that means that at some point between creation and the fall in the garden, that there must have been a rebellion in the angelic world with many angels turning against God and becoming evil. And Satan is one of those angels. He is the leader of those angels. Now, how do we know that? There are some um, scriptures that allude to this. Uh, 2 Peter 2, 4, 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. In Jude 1, 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so we see in the scriptures that at some point there was a, a rebellion, an angelic rebellion against God that led to evil coming into this world through Satan and the angels. That God created them with the capacity to rebel against him and some chose to. And what we see from the scriptures is that this rebellion, this fall, came from a place of pride. It came from a place of pride. This is Jude. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling. Their own position of authority, that there was a desire to be greater than God, a desire that was born out of pride that led to to their falling. And it is that same temptation that is still at the heart of much of our sins today. It was the heart of the sin in the garden. Don't you want to be like God, knowing good from evil? It's the very thing that Peter warned us against. Right? This is why Peter includes this warning. He follows a quotation from Proverbs 16.5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Peter quotes it. This way, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Verse 5, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, this is interesting to me, because James does the exact same thing in James chapter 4, starting in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The exact same Old Testament uh, proverb that Peter quotes, James quotes, and then look what follows both quotations. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. So in both Parts, Peter and James, instructing us not to be prideful, but to humble ourselves before God. Follow that with a warning of the devil and his schemes. Why? Because at the heart of the devil and his schemes, at the heart of his fall, is the issue of pride. A lack of humility. Many scholars believe that Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 are a description of the fall of Satan. Some will say it's a description of the fall of an earthly king. I do not believe it is. I do believe it is a description of the fall of of Satan. Here's what it says. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, 
you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assemblies in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. This is the fall of Satan who sought to elevate himself above God but was cut down under the mighty hand of God. In Luke 10, starting in verse 17, it says that the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. At some point between creation and the garden, there was a rebellion and there was a fall, and that is how Satan came to be. Created in splendor, created in glory, an angelic being, yet full of pride, has fallen and is now our adversary. Peter identifies him as Satan, and that is his personal name, you see it used in Job 1.6, 1 Chronicles 21.1, Zechariah 3.1, just to name a few. The word Satan is a Hebrew word that means adversary. That's what his, his name means. He is called 30 different things in God's word. Those include the devil, Beelzebub, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the father of lies, a liar, the ruler of darkness, of the darkness of this world, the serpent of old, the tempter, and the God of this age. That's where Satan came from. Well, what kind of powers does Satan have? Well, I can tell you what kind of powers he has in one word, and that is limited. He has limited powers. Satan is not all-powerful. Satan is not sovereign. His powers are limited, and they are limited by the only one who is sovereign, God himself. We see that in Job 1, 6 and 7. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. I know you got loads of questions about that. Guess what? So do I. <laughs> and the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. So we see that Satan is on the earth, walking on the earth, has being a spiritual being has the ability to both walk on this earth and come before God. And we learn in the verses that follow this that Satan could only do what God allowed him to do. God, Satan had to ask God for permission to come against Job. Why? Because his powers are limited. He is not sovereign. He is not 
powerful. Listen, church, Satan is not omnipresent and Satan is not omniscient. He is not those things. I don't know where this came from, but Satan cannot read your mind. He can't read your thoughts. You know, oh, don't think it. The devil know you think it. He's going to get you. Anybody ever heard that before? <laughs> we don't even think it. Satan does not have the ability to read your thoughts. God's word says the only one who has the ability to know the thoughts and intentions of man are God himself. Oh, by the way, we see Jesus doing that over and over again because he's totally divine. Satan cannot read your thoughts. Satan is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere. He is at one place at one time. That's it. His power is limited. And that of his forces, which are demons, they are limited. They have limited powers. Now, that does not mean that he is not powerful. And that does not mean that he does not have influence. He does. Satan is powerful. And he does have influence. And that is seen in the garden as he is able to influence Eve and Adam to sin and to not trust God. His influence is to persuade and to twist God's word. That's what he does in the garden. That's what he attempts to do with Jesus in the wilderness. He is perverse and he is pervasive. He is identified as the ruler of this world. In John 14, 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, Jesus says. He's identified by Jesus as the ruler of this world. And you, you, you read that, you go, I thought God was the ruler of this world. There is a level of influence that Satan has that affects this world. It's a... It's a Evil, sinful influence on this world. And it is perverse and it is pervasive. Do you remember Jesus in the wilderness? And what Satan does. Satan even offered the world to Jesus. In Luke 4, starting in verse 5, And the devil took him high up, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to them, To you I will give all authority... All this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If then, worship me, it will be yours. Now, when you read that, what do you make of this? Like, how can Satan do this? How can, how can this belong to Satan? How could Satan give this to Jesus? Well, the uh, first thing I want you to notice is that Satan admits, he admits himself that he only has the power that's been given to him. Right? He said... To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. Well, who gave it to him? God gave it to him. It didn't originate in him. It didn't come from him. He's not God. Now, had Jesus worshipped him in that moment, then in that moment, Jesus would have ceased being God and he would have made Satan God. And therefore, that means that Satan could have then given it to him. 
But Jesus would never do that because he is God and he has never ceased to be God, not for one moment. So when we come to this text in the scriptures, and it's difficult to make sense of, I like what John Piper has to say of it. Here's what John Piper says. Satan is stupid. (laughs) Satan is stupid. This was stupid. And how Satan works is stupid. But what you see in this text is exactly how Satan works. He uses just enough that seems to be true. But in reality, it's just plain stupid. Is Satan the rule of the world? Sure he is. He, he has influence over the world as it has rebelled against God, a rebellion that began with him. His power is, is great. His influence is perverse and it is pervasive. And his sway on this world is terrible and it is immense. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and once you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And the reality is, and what Peter warns us, is that he is looking to devour you. Now, I am not there's a demon behind every doorknob kind of fellow. And I don't for one second think that Satan himself has ever tempted me to do anything because he can only be at one place at one time. And for me to think that's pretty prideful. There's some other folks he's got more to worry about than me. The majority of the time when we sin, the scriptures are clear that our sin comes from our own sinful flesh and desires. But the reality is, spiritually speaking, as sin is pervasive... And as Satan's sway on this world through sin is pervasive, he is looking to devour you. Your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But make no mistake about it, church. His demise and his doom is sure. He is defeated. Colossians 2, starting in verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus has disarmed Satan. He has taken the greatest tool that he had, our sin, and he has made it nothing. Nailing it to the cross and giving us redemption and freedom. And now we can know that no matter the battle, we will have ultimate victory in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, no powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Satan's in that list. 
And his power is not enough to separate us from the love of God. His power has been dealt a great blow. He has been weakened. Jesus has proven God faithful. He has shown that God is bigger. That's what the cross and the resurrection shows. But Satan is still fighting. Even though he knows he's lost, he's still fighting. But that fight, church, will not last forever. Revelation 20, 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There is an ultimate end coming to the battle. It's already been won in Jesus Christ. And eventually, Satan will be cast into hell. By the way, hell is not his playground. Hell is not his domain. Hell is his place for eternal punishment. Hell belongs to God. It doesn't belong to Satan. And that's the place of his eternal torment. And it is the place of eternal torment for all who follow his ways and like him reject God in pride. But the good news is that Christ has made a way. Christ has made a way and he's made a way through his death. As he paid the penalty of sin, as he absorbed the wrath of God against sin, as he triumphed over the results of sin, which are death, and he has now given all who come to him by faith, forgiveness, new birth, and eternal life. The victory is won. The battle is over only for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't, and if you don't, then your future is the same as your adversaries. But in Jesus Christ, there is hope. There is hope. There is forgiveness of sins. And we see in Christ a God who is gracious and good and loving and patient and faithful. And this is the contrast. A great, good, glorious, gracious God And Satan, who seeks to destroy and to steal and to kill. This is the contrast. So, what do we do? Church, here's what we do. We be humble. We trust Christ. We be sober-minded. We be watchful. And we resist him. That's next week. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.